0: This is The John Oakley Show Podcast. Here's what's on The John Oakley Show Podcast for Monday, August 17, 2020. Embattled fashion mogul Peter Nygaard is now facing allegations by his two sons that he orchestrated their rape when they were teenagers. We hear from the lawyer representing them. We hear from a caller with a story about his friend hiring a prostitute to take his adult son's virginity. While the federal deficit surges out of control, Justin Trudeau and his finance minister Bill Morneau are at odds about what to do. And time flies. It's been 10 years since the G20 in Toronto, but a $16.5 million settlement has just been reached in the class action lawsuit over the arrests made that weekend. All of this starts now. This has to uh, do with the 57 women who have claimed that they were raped and there were sexual abuses, intimidation, and all those kinds of things from the Winnipeg-based fashion mogul Peter Nygaard, whose two sons have now come out as well with allegations that are equally serious, and the lawyer representing not just the women plaintiffs, but Peter Nygard's two sons, Greg Gutzler, has joined the Oakley Show this afternoon here at Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Greg, appreciate your joining us. Good afternoon.
1: Yes, sir. Good afternoon. Hi, John. Nice to talk to you.
0: My pleasure. Uh, so, walk me through the nature of the complaint uh, or complaints of the two boys, especially.
1: Yes. So, so thank you for having me. So, this was a a, a difficult road uh, for these for these young men to take and and finally come forward. It's been a very difficult path. And as as recounted in the complaint, each of them um, were statutorily raped by the same. Um, quote, girlfriend, if you will, of Peter Nygaard, about 14 years apart. And um, she was doing so at the direct instruction and behest of Peter Nygaard.
0: The 14 years apart is uh, an intriguing timeline. So how does that work? Uh, As I understand it, one son, the claim goes, uh, was statutorily raped when he was a minor in 2004. And then the same woman uh, statutorily raped another son in 2018.
1: That is absolutely correct.:
0: And you're saying this was uh, Nygard's girlfriend, and acquaint- whatever the case may be, he specifically allegedly hired this woman to do just that?:
1: uh, Not quite that. I know that it's been reported that way. What it was is that she, in fact, worked for him essentially, part of, part of her job was to get him to get him women and to, to perform sexual services, and he uh, instructed her to do this to his two boys, each of whom were underage.
0: Now, is there evidence to suggest that? I mean, or is it just going on the say-so of the boys at this point?
1: Uh, we have a lot more evidence than that. Um, John, before we brought this case, we we made sure that we corroborated and verified all of the facts, just like we did with the other case. And so we were very, very meticulous in ensuring that we had corroboration on all aspects of the spectrum here. And I, um, as you can probably appreciate, I can't give you details, but I can assure you it is absolutely accurate and we have all the evidence to prove it.
0: What about the woman in question? Uh, is she part of the evidence?
1: Uh, I can't comment on that.
0: I'm I sorry. see. How was it arranged for these boys to come forward or did they contact you of their own will and volition? How'd that work out?
1: They did. And you know what? The, the irony of this thing, John, is that uh, as Peter Nygaard and his um, paid defense team continue to say, all of these people are lying, I think that really um, raised, raised the ire of these boys who knew that they, there, there weren't lies. They thought, this is a time to make a societal statement. And they are incredibly brave, incredibly principled people who said, I need to take this stand to stand. Um, and give a platform to people who have been hurt, because sexual abuse is not something we should intimidate people into silence about. They had been intimidated into silence and no more. So they actually came forward to show solidarity for the women that had accused uh, their father and saying, we need to change as a society. We need to talk about this. We can't allow this to occur anymore. So that's how it came about.
0: Again, with Greg Gutzler, lawyer representing Peter Nygard's sons and the women plaintiffs of which there were 57 in this uh, case that says or alleges that uh, he sexually abused all of the parties effectively in the two boys when they were underage minors and they were uh, exploited by a woman that he had hired, a member of the oldest profession and therefore it constitutes statutory rape. The boys, I guess I could do the math, but how how old are they now?
1: Uh, I'm, I very much apologize, John. I can't answer that. They have asked to proceed as John does at this point. I do believe uh, that at some point they may go public, but as you can imagine, um, taking this step was a huge step, and they're trying to um, they're trying to do this incrementally. It's very hard for them, and they want some degree of privacy. And they've decided to take this step again to show support for other. Um, people who have been victims of sexual abuse so I can't answer that question because that would readily identify them
0: okay uh, well what is a relationship with the father I'm assuming they're estranged
1: um, I think that's a fair assumption
0: okay okay you know I'm, I'm curious too as well because the case is going to be litigated in the southern district of New York in Manhattan and that's the same way uh, I guess where uh, Harvey Weinstein Jeffrey Epstein as well uh, where their case was litigated is that just a coincidence
1: um, I think, it, well, it, it's a coincidence um, in that it happens to be the nucleus of, of each of the operations they had. Uh, our theory in the case is that Nygaard's operations had a worldwide headquarters in New York City, and that is what he has professed to the world, professed to all his customers. And a lot of the operations, a lot of the uh, conduct. Uh, uh, the activities and the conduct emanated from that New York center and I think it happens to be that New York is a center for a lot of people with power and power can create corruption and corruption can let people get away with things for a long time so is it a coincidence sort of and sort of not I guess is the way I would answer that <laughs> if you understand what I'm saying
0: No, I do uh, and so it's more than Peter Nygaard per se that's being sued here uh, there are corporate entities that are subject to the suit as well correct
1: that's correct, that's because Peter Nygaard used the companies as his own personal piggy bank, and they were instrumental in this, in this massive sex trafficking venture. If you look at how he did all of this, all of the resources, including employees, money, et cetera, were all used by the company. It was company resources. The company was paying, for example, for plastic surgery for his girlfriend. He was also paying hush money from the company. So all of these things were paid for by the company, and therefore the company has liability as well.
0: I see. And so the 57 women plus the two sons in this case, it's a class action lawsuit. I guess thats uh, it's similar to the Epstein case as well as uh, Weinstein, too, better than individuals, I guess, going after the the person. Were some of these women underage and otherwise Canadian women?
1: The answer, the answer to your question is yes. And to be clear, John, the, the Jane Doe 1 through 57, that's a class action and we, as of the last filing, we had 57 um, victims. We now have 75. And the John Doe lawsuit, the two sons, that is not a class action. I just wanted to clear that up.
0: I got no, that's fine. Uh, and for the boys, if I understand correctly, uh, you've, you're looking for a trial by jury. Why is that?
1: Well, that's, you know, the, the American justice system, the bedrock principle is a. a a jury trial is just sort of ingrained in our, in our moral and legal fabric. That is what the statute allows here. That is what uh, one of the constitutional principles really is embedded in our culture. And we think it's important that, that in almost every case, that a defendant's uh, liability be adjudged by a group of peers um, in our country. And that's what we really just th- think that's an esteemed principle, and we abide by that
0: all right and and so further to that point of the american justice system uh tell me about the damages you're seeking here
1: so um we don't talk about things um like that as just uh, trial lawyers generally speaking and um there was an interview given last night by john doe number two and he made very very clear and i agree with him this case is not about money and so yes we are civil lawyers and part of a jury trial is perhaps to look at the accountability of a defendant but the, the core fabric of this case has nothing to do with money. Um, and, the, and the direct answer to your question is we have not asked for any type of money or damages at this point. And that would be up to a jury to decide if it goes that far. So that's exactly what a jury does. And we we don't put numbers out there. That's just our general um, thought process on that, John. Some 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 lawyers do. Uh, we choose not to. We think a jury is best best situated to determine that without a bunch of lawyers telling them what they think.
0: So Greg, where do you put Nygard's worth at this point, personally as well as corporately?
1: Um so that's gonna be that's a really, really interesting question and one that is gonna be is gonna be a real lightning rod for the rest of the proceedings because um we we are quite certain he's been sequestering assets, he's been diverting assets. In fact, in the Richter receivership report, it talks about him basically shedding assets to people at the low market rate so he's clearly trying to shield himself and he's really trying to insulate himself from having to pay any of these people anything so he's trying to hurt them yet again and that's that's peter nygaard
0: well, you know uh he says by way of what i've read anyway his defense that uh this is all emanating from a feud with a billionaire neighbor on the island in the bahamas it's a property issue uh what do you hear? What do you know on that front? And will this billionaire uh, be called to testify as a witness?
1: Uh, the answer is that's not a defense. It's just not true. Um, we, have, we have 75 women um, that were assaulted by Peter Nygaard. And the most interesting thing about that in terms of his, quote, defense, which is not a defense, it's mere propaganda, and it's quite frankly embarrassing, And it's it's a real shame to see them stoop to those new lows. But the answer is, we have people from as early as 1977, and most critically, we have corroborating evidence from that time frame, which is decades, decades before uh, Peter Nygaard ever had a property dispute with his neighbor. Um, His neighbor has nothing to do with this case. And he will not be called as a witness because he has nothing to do with it whatsoever. So the evidence we have predates any such dispute. We have it all, and um, you know it's it's really interesting that even his own children are coming forward with the truth. So it's you know it's really time. It's time to take accountability. It's time to be honest. It's time to stop saying the people who have been hurt are liars. I think we've probably advanced as a society and a culture beyond that. And I'm quite frankly embarrassed that people could be paid to make up lies like that for Peter Nygaard. So it's shameful.
0: And so finally, Greg, uh, when does this sal- salacious saga go to court?
1: <laughs> well, um, so that's an interesting question, John. I, um, I don't think it's ever going to go to court. I think that we are going to see justice soon. And uh, Peter Nygaard is going to be exposed uh, exactly as we said he is. So I don't think you're going to see a trial.
0: No perp walk, nothing like that. Oh, I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm a civil lawyer. I'm a civil lawyer,
1: and the government would do the perp walk. So that's the government's purview to, to bring criminal charges if they choose to do so. That is, I have nothing to do with that. What I'm saying to you is I don't think there'll be a civil trial. So let me be clear. I don't mm-hmm. think there'll be a civil trial because I think Peter ne- Nygaard is going to be exposed very, very soon, and I think you'll see that soon.
0: So the, the two don't necessarily go hand in glove, then, the civil case as well as a criminal one. Uh, no, I, I understand, but, you know, that's kind of an interesting and intriguing question. When you say that, it's kind of a little bit ambiguous. You think there will be a settlement prior to that?
1: Uh, I'm not necessarily that saying that, but I can tell you that the American justice system is sometimes a little different than a lot of other countries. So the civil and the criminal are completely separate. So you were correct when you said that. We have nothing to do with the criminal aspect. We are not the government. We are the civil lawyers, totally separate. What I'm saying to you is that I would be shocked if there is a civil trial here, because I believe that there is going to be justice that is administered very, very soon, where where Peter Nygaard can't raise these propaganda defenses anymore. And it's essentially a fait accompli. That's what I think.
0: We'll see if you're uh, proven to be prophetic. It's fascinating. I appreciate the inside (laughs) account of uh, what's playing out here in the early stages. Greg, so good to talk to you, and uh, perhaps we'll do so again by way of follow-up. Thanks for your time.
1: Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Take care.
0: You got it. Greg Gutzler, again, lawyer representing Peter Nygaard's Sons and the 50, well, what did he say, 75 now, women plaintiffs in this case. What a sordid ordeal. Anyway, uh, (laughs) he's pretty pretty adamant that the... uh, jig is up as far as this guy is concerned.
2: This is a friend of mine. Uh, his son's name is my friend Dan, his son, and I swear to God, it's not me. My friend <laughs> Dan's son, right? So he was like 29 years old and still never had a girlfriend, plays too much video games. So he figured, you know, let's take this guy out for an night in the town, right? Takes him out to the ripper joint, finds a prostitute there, second oldest profession, by the way, the oldest profession is hunter. So finds <laughs> the uh, a hooker there, right? Mm-hmm. Hires this hooker, unbeknownst to him. So He thinks all of a sudden, you know, I'm all of a sudden become attractive to women. And he's, oh, yeah, I got this, I got that. So we later find out that this is a hooker, right? And he didn't even know. And then about a week later, he's got chlamydia oh dear i know Uh, i know so yeah needless to say he (laughs) felt like a bit of a victim because he thought the girl was actually interested in him he didn't realize that the girl was paid
0: wow uh way too many video games so uh there wasn't a happy ending per se because it came with an appendix or an addendum uh that destroyed the previous all right but you know i'm being personally i was Mm.
2: 13 Uh and the woman was 24 right Mm. Mm. and i can tell you right now i do not feel like a victim
0: you, but you were 13. I mean, at the time, was there any consideration that this constituted statutory rape?
2: Um, at the time, uh, it was honestly like the furthest thing from my mind. You know, like, there is truly a double standard here. Like, you know, I understand there, there is the age of consent was 14 at the time, you know, but you can't rape the willing. So in this situation, like for me, it, yeah, I'm absolutely, I was not a victim. You know, maybe she took advantage of me, but I was not a victim
0: so how did she seduce you like free popsicles how did that work
2: well actually i just took her out for boat rides and she was buying the the liquor for the the parties at night and that was that was that i suppose that's how she seduced me but again like i do not require any seduction i was 13
0: uh, no, wait a minute you took her out for boat rides so uh... you had control of a boat you were basically running oh, yeah. A boat? Sled. yeah i had a
2: 1974 boat yeah i had my first oh. car when i was fourteen yeah like didn't follow many of the rules you know what i mean but back then you didn't have to be sixteen years old to have a boat you know, you weren't supposed to drive anything over 9.9. 9, but, uh, yeah, again, I didn't really care about any of that. I got away with it.
0: Oh, okay. Unlike Dan's son.
2: Yeah, Dan, uh, <laughs> Dan's son didn't quite get away with it. You know, if I could remember his name, I would say it, too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you really don't have a governor on some of your actions and thoughts. I got it. Okay, listen, Colin, appreciate your way you. in this afternoon. Have a good one. Yeah, you do. <laughs> oh, dear. Right now I need an explanation as to what could be playing out between Bill Morno, the finance minister, and the Prime Minister. Seems there's a rift over how one sees spending to be necessary and profligate and the other is trying to put the brakes on all of that. Joining us to assess John Turley Ewart is our friend, the risk management consultant specializing in capital markets on Bay and Wall Streets. Johnny, how you doing? I'm well. How are you? Good too, thanks. Hey, what do you make of this Morno uh, Justin Trudeau rift, where some are saying Morneau is basically on the outs, and it's going to be a case of Mark Carney coming in, the former head of the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England. So, but because Morneau is supposedly uh, the adult in the room trying to put the brakes on profligate spending, uh, what do you say to that?
3: Um, I'm not sure it's about spending. They both, in the past, have agreed to to spend. I mean, they you know they are successful liberals after all, right? They're used to using other people's money. Uh, I think the question really comes down to, are they using it effectively and has Morneau done that in this crisis? I mean, the key, the key thing about, you know, COVID-19 is that we've gotten through uh, the phase where we had to get the curve uh, down uh, and reduce the number of COVID-19 cases. But we did that at a tremendous cost. And I think most business people in, in, in the, the country, frankly, would say that assistance to business has just not worked out. The policy that has come out of finance, for instance, support and uh, rent relief, commercial rent relief, has been a disaster. It just hasn't worked. And for small businesses across the country, I think if you, know, you were to poll them and ask them how they feel about finance's response – you would get a negative reaction. I know that farmers are not happy. I think the fact comes down to good policymaking, and Mr. Morneau, who may have been uh, you know, a, a reasonable finance minister in good times, may be, uh, in Mr. Trudeau's mind, not the man for a crisis.
0: Well, you know, initially, when it came to the wage subsidy, for uh, instance, Bill Morneau uh, reportedly wanted it only to be a 10% wage subsidy, and Justin said, no, no, let's make it 75%. It's a real disparity there. Uh, do you think that was the early inklings of uh, a different point of view on how, how they should address this uh, whole upheaval?
3: Well, let's imagine that's true for a moment. Uh, I would say that uh, it would suggest that Mr. Morneau was clearly... Out of touch with what this uh, the, the impact of COVID 19 is and was and continues to be. Uh, you know when you shut down the economy, uh, the the unemployment rate uh, it's just skyrocketed and it is not going down fast enough and it's not going to come come down. Uh, you know as quickly as we want until we have a vaccine. So you're looking at another year or two of of having. Uh, high unemployment, uh, reduced government revenues, and you need strong government policy to help the economy move forward and to grow. And Mr. Morneau apparently doesn't think, uh, at least he did, if this is true what you're saying, didn't seem to understand that at the beginning.
0: So why do you think he's out of touch? Because he's uh, living, you know, uh, in an ivory tower of sorts, had a big business pop started and handed over to him. Uh, Where is he misjudged?
3: Well, it, it, you know, I, I don't like to, to, you know, castigate people who've had success, um, and obviously success is run in his family, but he doesn't exactly come from a background where he's had to build something from nothing uh, and, and, and understand the pressures that come with that kind of exercise and to work closely with, with working people. I mean, you know, Mr. Morneau is not that kind of fellow. Uh, I mean, I think the closest he would be get get to the working working folks would be the gardeners at his French villa, uh, and that's <laughs> about it. So, so, so you can see how you know someone who forgets to pay a forty one thousand dollar bill, for example, may not understand you know someone fretting over their ability to pay their, their two thousand dollar rent payment in Ontario uh, with a serb a check for that only amounts to two thousand bucks.
0: Well, yeah. Back in the day, I guess it was about a year and a half, two years ago, didn't they also misfire, or he did, by suggesting private corporations, you know, individuals like uh, accountants and dentists and so on and so forth, were basically tax cheats?
3: Yeah, there, there was this, uh, this attack on small business people who are incorporated and who, uh, you know, pay themselves uh, dividends uh, through their corporation and also who save money for their retirement, uh... in those corporations it is in essence a pension fund for them so that when they're no longer able to work or when they wish to retire they have an income stream to support uh... support them as they get older and for whatever reason mister marnell uh... seemed to come out of i don't know It was like uh... he thought it was nineteen sixty four and everyone had a pension plan and didn't seem to grasp that you know one of the biggest drivers in our economy or small business but what they need is that corporate structure to save their own money to look after themselves. And that really was a misstep, but they did step away from it.
0: Again, with John Turley, you at risk management consultant specializing in capital markets on Bay and Wall Streets. Just talking about the rift between Justin Trudeau and Bill Morneau, or at least uh, insiders in the Ottawa bubble are intimating that's what's taking place. Do you see Mark Carney actually uh, fulfilling that role, maybe guiding us, shepherding us back through the recovery here, and Morneau will be pretty much roadkill at this point?
3: Uh, I mean, it, it is highly unusual uh, to bring someone in from the outside who hasn't got a seat and put them in cabinet. It certainly has been done. Uh, it was, uh, you know, you know the, the, the history that I am most familiar with and I've written a lot about is during the First World War. And it was it was uh, not uncommon to see the prime minister bring in advisers and actually put people who were not elected in cabinet. Uh, in that kind of scenario, you had your C D house of the world as well, your dollar a day man, as, as they called them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in the modern times, it'd be a dollar a day person. But you're supposed to be reflecting the will of the people and putting elected officials in. And if you've got to go out and recruit someone like Mr. Carney and he's not even elected, and stick him into a role that would be essentially kept for an elected uh, Member of Parliament, that says a lot about the strength in his uh, in his uh, current cabinet and backbench.
0: Johnny, let me ask you finally, because, uh, you know, I was reading in the post today, I guess it's a piece from Kelly McParlin, children are paying the price for years of government overspending, so... Has government mismanaged the public treasury, uh, both provincially as well as federally, miscalculated so when the rainy day finally came here by way of pandemic, we can't meet all these obligations, let alone needs and wants, including, you know, with the teachers, they want smaller classes, hire more teachers, retrofit the HVAC systems and so on and so forth. Doug Ford was beside himself at his presser today saying, you know, come on, unions, uh, show a little flexibility. We have. Work with us. Work with us. I mean, back in the day, we might have been able to uh, do all these wonderful things and with the elderly in long-term care homes and so on and so forth. Was all of that squandered by previous governments right up to almost the present day?
3: Well, uh, we certainly, in the case of Ontario, have less room between 2007 and 17 Um, the percentage increase in in debt in Ontario went up by 54%, which is, uh, you know, quite extraordinary. The only province to beat that was New Brunswick at uh, almost 70%. Uh, You know, federally, uh, the debt went up uh, at that period by by 10%. So Ottawa has a lot uh, more fiscal room, uh, than than Ontario does right now. You're looking at a, a projected Ontario debt to GDP uh, in uh, in 2021 of about 47%. Uh, you know, last year it was around 39%. What all this means is, you know, for the next two or three years, if we're adding 40, 50 billion dollars in in annual debt, we're pretty we're going to get pretty close to uh, that point where we start having a real problem, and that is that 77% 7%, if you hit that point where you're at a debt-to-GDP to ratio of 77%, uh, you're going to have a hard time growing the economy. Uh, you may have, you know, when interest rates go up, you're going to have, be in real trouble then. Uh, you know, credit ratings go down. And what happens is you can't fund social services, and you end up making cuts. And I think probably what Ontario is looking at right now is if, you know, the Ontario teachers can provide some support uh, on the budget side so that they do not have to spend, net, you know, an extra half million or billion dollars a year uh, to keep schools going in Ontario.
0: Right. Uh, the drat structural deficits uh, that can be a millstone around our neck. It's like trying to swim to the other shore and you got a bathtub tied to your ankle. Uh, points well made. Johnny, as always, I appreciate your weighing in this afternoon. We'll talk again real soon. Take care. And you, John turley risk management consultant specializing in capital markets on Bay and Wall Streets. Not a bad day for those who are litigants in this class action lawsuit or at least complainants when Danny just mentioned after 10 years, they're looking at a settlement of 16.5 million all in about 1100 or so. I understand they're also uh, still open to having other people join this uh, mass class action because it really was a case of mass incarceration. I think it was the uh, biggest uh, case of anybody being kettled this way. That was the way it was described, but uh, the largest mass arrest in Canadian history during the G20 back 10 years ago. Joining us on the line to explain the wherewithal of uh, going forward with this case, which is still, I guess, to be heard by a judge on the 19th of October, Murray Klippenstein is representing this class action lawsuit, and he's joined the Oakley Show this afternoon. Murray, good to have you on board. Good afternoon. Uh, Hi, yeah, good afternoon. afternoon. So, uh, maybe you can just back it up 10 years. First of all, I'm kind of curious why this took 10 years to come to this point.
4: Good good question. Um, As as you just mentioned, it was back in 2010 that uh, uh, these events happened at the the World uh, Leader Summit, and um, uh, people were really shocked at what had happened. um, And uh, when uh, Sherry Good decided to launch a class action to represent the 1,100 or so people who were arrested, Uh, One of the first steps is to get the court to prove it as a a class action, and that actually took uh, more than six years, and we had to go to the Supreme Court of Canada just to get that initial certification, because the the police lawyers, and this is their job, they fought very hard and very well against that, so we had to go through four levels of court to the Supreme Court of Canada just to get it approved as a class action. and then. Uh, After that, we did some more litigation steps and finally um, uh, moved into some negotiation and mediation, and uh, and that took a long time as well. It was a a tough, tough slog, and um, uh, one of the amazing things is when it was announced today, uh, Eric and I got a flood of phone calls and emails from people in the class, and what what really astonished us is for many of them, it was the memories were like yesterday. This was one of the shocking things of their lives.
0: Yeah, you're referencing your partner, Eric Gillespie, also a litigation lawyer leading the case. So, uh, yep. Murray, then, what was the original complaint or the basis of the lawsuit?
4: Well, the uh, as you mentioned, there these involved mass arrests in which hundreds of people, up to 400 people, uh, who were either part of a peaceful demonstration uh, or were just passers-by or shoppers or something, got uh, swept into a circle of riot police. Um, in a cordon, and basically arrested in a mass, um, whether or not any of them had done anything wrong whatsoever, and uh, then they were held there at Queen and Spadina, for example, in four or five hours, pouring cold, freezing rain, um, and uh, uh, some of them being snatched every once in a while for you know, kind of a violent arrest. Um, and that's not supposed to happen in Canada. Uh, police are not supposed to be able to do that. You know, you're supposed to only arrest people when you have reasonable grounds to think they did something wrong. And hundreds of people at different locations, on the Esplanade um, and in a U of T gymnasium, were, were mass arrested. And uh, that has it, it never happened before in Canada. And uh, part of what we wanted in the settlement was to put in some terms that hopefully you know, it'll never happen again. Now, a, lo- a lot of uh, people who whose experiences it's thought this was an unbelievable thing to happen in Canada they could not believe it and uh, lots of maybe your your listeners will say well that's not the way things are supposed to operate here
0: so if i read correctly then <clears throat> excuse me it was uh, sort of based on constitutional grounds or charter rights
4: yeah, very much so. Uh, and also some of the ba- interesting, right, some of the basic rules of policing that go back a couple of hundred years, um, uh, you know, about the, the boundary between what police can do and what the freedoms are that we are supposed to have, uh, freedom to uh, walk down the street, also freedom, as you say, and uh, under the Charter to express. Uh, a lot of these people uh, were expressing their views on on issues, global issues with the world leaders in town uh, about uh, global poverty. Climate change uh, and so forth, and you know, agree or disagree with your views. I think most Canadians think we should be allowed to do that. And you're right; it's a part of our charter right of freedom expression. And, and uh, in this in this uh, settlement agreement, and not only was there uh, some some financial compensation to the people who went through uh, what many of them think is one of the most horrifying experiences in their life, because after getting arrested, they got thrown into a big temporary prison which was really awful as well. Um, not only a compensation, but also, frankly, an, an acknowledgement uh, publicly by the Toronto Police uh, uh, about what happened. And also, we negotiated some specific terms about future policing of public demonstrations and how that's going to happen.
0: Interesting. Uh, so there was something derived from this. Murray Klippenstein, by the way, is with us. Lawyer representing these clients in the class action lawsuit, uh, that back in the day, 2010, saw, well, anyway, 1,100 people who were the complainants in this, uh, getting awarded today 16.5 million for being, incarcerated and uh corralled by the police it was the largest mass arrest in Canadian history just out of curiosity i mean the police board uh what could their possible responses have been or where could they have argument argued uh in resisting you know the case against them
4: well, one of the things that uh, they argued was that this isn't a proper class action because class actions are meant uh, as a special procedure for groups of people who have legal claims that are quite similar so that they can be handled together. And they said there was so much variation in what people went through and people's conduct that it, it shouldn't be grouped together. And we had to go through several levels of court to the Supreme Court of Canada uh, for the courts to decide no, this is a proper class action. There's enough commonality. Uh, between the people in each in the groups that were arrested and in the in the temporary prison, uh, so they could properly be held as a class action. And and also, let's be frank, uh, you know everybody who watched TV back then knew there were instances of, uh, of of individuals in the in the peaceful demonstrations. Although thousands of people were very peaceful, there were some instances of deliberate uh, vandalism and violence. And uh, uh, the police uh, said, uh, you know, that kind of justified what we did and that, that that didn't really stand up in court but um but that was the argument
0: yeah i could see that that would be uh maybe uh, a natural response to that one of the other uh i guess uh, points to surface here in all of this is that the people who were uh you know, charged according to this uh, back in 2010, had their police records expunged, which is an important stipulation. I mean, you want to travel to the states, for example. Yep. Uh, any anybody? Right. Uh, yeah. Did they? Uh, were there tales of people who had maybe uh, suffered great disruption in their lives because of that record?
4: Yeah, yeah, you're quite right. I mean, um, in employment records, and you know, if you're getting promoted, if you've got a government job. Uh, having this kind of uh, uh, thing on your record, without any explanation, can be devastating to your career. Traveling, uh, uh, you know, even vacationing across boundaries, going to the U.S., the records can be uh, can be really devastating. I got a call today from uh, from one of the uh, protesters from the U.S. Who said uh, she uh, had only come back to Canada in the ten years once or twice and had a horrific time. So that was one of the most important things to her is the expungement of the records
0: so tell me about the 16.5 million how was that figure arrived at and is that a fixed figure now because earlier today we were talking to some people who had actually been down there and uh, were corralled this way and caught up in the dragnet uh although they're not party to the original suit and uh is there still a possibility others can join the lawsuit
4: uh yes i mean uh Nobody has an exact uh, record of of who was involved because in some cases, like at Queen and Spadina, there were about 400 people, uh, counted heads in one of those famous photos uh, taken from from above. Uh, But we didn't know exactly who they were. And in the the temporary prison down on Eastern Avenue, uh, it was frankly chaos. And then the police weren't able to keep track of everybody's names and so on. So we don't know exactly who was involved. Uh, We have uh, most of their names, I think. Uh, but we're inviting people to to uh, call us, to look up uh, on the website, to learn more, to, to email us, because they may be entitled to compensation that they didn't realize. Um, there's a process for that where we have to submit some evidence. That's That that will come in the future. It's not particularly onerous. Um, and uh, so there, there may be more. That we know there are more people there that we don't know about. I think we know about most of them, but they're welcome to to contact us. Uh, there's, there's two websites that are set up that give more information on this background, the, the justification for it, and, and the compensation was carefully arrived at so that you know, for the five groups where the different mass arrest locations happened, uh, everyone in the group gets the same amount, but there's the, the differences between the groups because the treatment at the different uh, locations was a little bit different. Uh, for example, one location, uh, there were mass arrests for about two hours, but I know it was closer to five and in much worse conditions. So the compensation varies up or down depending on the conditions and, and also uh, for the detention centre. So the, the range will be roughly between about $5,000 and about $24,700 for the, for the worst scenarios.
0: Yeah, interesting there. Various criteria for quantifying what uh, someone may get. Now, I understand this still has to be reviewed and approved by a judge, and that hearing is slated for October 19th. Uh, what would that be about?
4: Uh, that's right. That's a standard part of a class action settlement in, the, in Ontario law, because uh, the, the law is set up so that there is a a sort of an oversight, a double-check by a judge. Um, you know, in this case, as in many cases, the class uh, the, the settlement has arrived at between... You know, groups of lawyers, uh, and and we work very closely with class representatives who, who uh, are you know are legally responsible to think about and speak for the for the class members. Uh, Sherry Good and Tommy Taylor did a great job for ten years. Uh, so there, there's there's a serious serious negotiations going on. In this case, we had uh, multiple day sessions uh, overseen by a judge, uh, but still, at the end of the road, the, the courts uh, want to be sure that everything is. Uh, everything is okay and and so the judge uh, will will review and make sure that it's a reasonable settlement and part of the notice that go out today is say that if you know if there's a class member who uh thinks they have an objection they'll have a chance to have their say in front of the judge just so that you know people can have confidence that that this is uh this is in fact uh, you know in in the interests of the class members
0: i would think though most people most parties to this would be satisfied with the outcome no
4: well, we don't know. I mean, we're we kind of uh, on the inside. We've been pushing for this and battling for this and negotiating this for many, many years. We think we did the darndest best we could. Um, uh, Tommy and Sherry seem to think it's pretty good. I mean, nothing in this world is perfect, um, but uh, but we think this is, uh, yeah, no, we, we really think this is an achievement on behalf of the class members and, and frankly, for, you know, our Canadian... You know, legal framework of rights that that for for you know the defense of our charter rights. Um, so we think it's <laughs> we think it's great, but we're biased. But uh, you know, we hope that this is why we set up a website. People can go and have a look at it. There's an explanation of how we how we got here, the different components, um, and uh, yeah, we do hope that people will look at it and and, and feel uh, feel good. I must say we've had. Uh, Dozens and dozens of calls uh, and emails today, and I uh, and they've all been really supportive. And many are saying thank you. We got a somebody who emailed in from Japan; he's living there now. Somebody who phoned from United Arab uh, Emirates, uh, uh, and most of the people are just uh, you know. Most of the people were a little bit cynical. They were so shocked in going through what they went through, um, and you have to remember the politicians back then stood behind the police, hundred percent. So a lot of people were a little bit shocked that there was actually maybe some 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 serious measure of justice here.
0: Well, certainly the police chief at the time is the current public uh, safety uh, minister in the Liberal government. So uh, that just shows you how things <laughs> evolve over ten years. Yeah, but good well, on you I on that. I don't comment on that. Uh, no, nor did I ask you to. It's just enough to be said. There's a monetary figure, but more importantly as well, uh, police protocols have changed as a consequence of uh, your work. And Murray, I thank you for that and the explanations, and wish you the best going forward.
4: No, oh, thanks so much, and I hope uh, I hope your listeners uh, found that uh, somewhat useful. Thanks so much.
0: Always, thank you. Uh, Murray Klippenstein, again, representing clients in that class action lawsuit, a settlement from the 2010 kettling during the height of the G20, back in June of 2010. This has been the Oakley Show podcast for Monday, August seventeenth, 2020. You can listen live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.